0: Welcome to the Honda Hacker podcast. Um, John, why don't you give us a, a number so I can number this podcast tonight? Any random number? Uh, let's do between 200 and 300, sounds good.
1: Let's go with 265.
0: Wow, that's really close to the last one. The last one was 267. Um, cool, number 265. Uh, So let's start off with some news. Um, I'll be speaking at uh, FinCon DX um, this upcoming Thursday live. Uh, It'll be remote, but it's a financial uh, kind of consortium conference for TechStrong. I'll be talking about uh, hackers' techniques and motivations throughout modern history going after financial institutions and people's money in general. Um, Other than that, I'll be speaking at ICE coming up pretty soon, uh, speaking for all of ICE in the U.S. sometime in January, I believe. Uh, And then I'll be on um, a good friend, Jack Scott uh, podcast later on this week, uh, talking about hackers and hackers' motivations. Um, So tonight we have John Lehman on. John's a friend of mine. And uh, John, why don't you introduce yourself and give us a bit of your background and and kind of what you're doing now, your journey. Well, I'm...
1: First of all, I want to say thank you for having me on Haunted Hacker. Uh, My background is I am retired military. Uh, The first stint that I spent in the military was active duty army, and I was a flight medic. I got out of doing that, and then I joined the Air National Guard as a security forces specialist, and then I took a short stint off of that and became an Alaska state trooper. And then from there, I uh, was kind of lost in the sauce, um, picked up jobs here and there. And now I am the senior director of veteran services at Intellectual Point. And one of the things that brought me to this point in juncture was working in private investigation and looking at fraud cases in particular, and then really getting into doing some or driving activities, which really sponsored my my love for the cybersecurity aspect of it, and just hacking in general. And I'm one of these guys that once I get involved in something, I I have to know more. I have to be part of that culture, and I have to live it, breathe it, and you know, uh, wear the uniform, so to speak, um, be part of that culture. So. know as things kind of chugged along i got hired into this position as a senior director of veteran services and what i do now is i assist veterans that need to gain a meaningful employment um, through the vet tech and the VRAP program um, through just many different channels Uh, one of the biggest things that we're looking at right now is blockchain and how blockchain is playing into the security aspects of Pretty much everything we're looking at as far as commerce is concerned, Um, anywhere from farming potatoes to um, dealing with cryptocurrencies and many people don't even understand what the multiple applications of blockchain are, so getting into conversations with people it's fun, Um, dealing with blockchain in particular. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I listened to a podcast dealing with insurance, cyber insurance, mm-hmm. and I was thinking about the applications of what blockchain would be for within cyber insurance. And I believe it was was Chris is the one that stated that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that was a great podcast. Um, I sit here and I take notes anytime that somebody knows a lot more than me. I like to take notes, um, observe. Just kind of be a fly on the wall, see what's going on. Right on. Um, That That's kind of uh, a background of myself and where I'm at right now. Cool. So, yeah, I th-
0: coming out of the military is an interesting phase, uh, especially when I came out of the military. So I went to the DAV and talked to them about what they could do for me. Um, also, I was using my GI Bill while I was in the military, just taking random random ass courses just because it, it gave me an extra 1000 bucks a month. But they were all science courses and geology and oceanography and just science in general. Um, So the DAV actually made a point and said, you know, look, if you qualify for a certain amount of uh, disability, then we can help you get money to start your own business, which I thought was really cool. The only unfortunate thing was, you know, with uh, TSSEI clearance, um, if you go to the VA, my biggest fear was losing that security clearance because of you know something that that happened during the active duty time or or whatever um because they were throwing uh diagnosis around like ptsd and stuff like that when i got out Um, but i didn't want to lose that clearance so i kind of had to you know luckily i had been doing the things that i'm doing now before i went in the military so i kind of knew where i was going to go back to um not quite the right side of it but uh, i eventually made it to the right side of it uh but uh yeah. So, I mean, I, I talked to a lot of vets. I talked to a lot of guys who are cross-rating you know, cross, cross into cyber warfare rates. Um, I talked to a guy who actually took one of my courses in the military, the one that I helped um, form the uh, CTN rate for, for the Navy. Uh, so it's really interesting to see people transition. Um, but I think even more interesting is what we bring to cybersecurity. As far as knowing the the chain of command, knowing war rooms, knowing fast paced, high intensity type situations, um, you know, looking at ransomware and some of the attacks now, uh, that's exactly what it is. It's like you know, detecting a, a weapon on a radar and a reaction. Um, so I see a lot of the military guys actually fitting in well and actually blending in, um, just like everybody else, uh, even though they don't have a background in that. They know what to do and. Theoretically, how to form things and get things going in an emergency. Um, So Alaska State Trooper. I mean, and I know most of the guys leave the military, like especially the guys that that I was in with uh, in intelligence left and became cops. And I I never understood that. Like, um, I know it's an easy transition, um, but what was your mindset going into law enforcement? Like, well, why did you pick law enforcement, not something completely off the grid?
1: <laughs> oh my gosh, here we go. You open up the can of worms here. Um, so my initial thought process was to go into something that was very paramilitary like mm-hmm. because when I got out of the army, I was out literally three days, and I could not stand being out of uniform. I hated. Yeah. It. yeah. I was like, I I I don't know how to act as a civilian. You know, people are looking at me weird when I say yes, ma'am, no, sir. Um, you know, it's just, it just—it didn't fit the paradigm. You know, I still had the high and tight, um, still walked around very robotic, and had a, a very militant mindset. So, I was out three days, and then I turned right around, and grabbed my DD-214, grabbed all my um, paperwork, went up to the Air National Guard base, and then processed as a security forces you know, uh, Air Force cop, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have a desire to do investigations and look at stuff prior. So, you know, when I did um, you're familiar with the website, uh, mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. they have like a little personality test you can do yeah. and it comes up and, you know, big surprise. I'm analytic and I, am in more inclined towards the forensics and, and analytics side of the house. Uh, I enjoy a lot of other things simply because I have a curious brain and I have that creative edge. You know, if if I can't make it, I wanna brick it. Um, and if I can't brick it, <laughs> then, then let, me, let me try to figure something else to do with this piece of equipment. And, or, you know, it doesn't matter if it's a shovel or if it's, uh, you know, a laptop. You know, it's like, let, let me do something different with this tool to make a better, a better pathway or a better job. Um, but it was more or less curiosity that got me into doing the police work is to answer your question. Um, and also to kind of foster that esprit de corps and camaraderie that I so longed for out of the military and just never got. Yeah. Um and I, everybody that's a veteran can probably agree with me or emote with me on a, a very deep level that that's one of the major things that as a veteran, um, it brings a lot of sadness because we crave to have leadership. We crave to have structure, structure, and camaraderie within a group where, if you know that you drop something and I'm behind you, I'm going to pick it up and I'm going to hand it back to him and say, Hey, this is yours, Mike. Um, You know, and I think that that's one of the things that terribly saddens a lot of veterans and it's where they lose their place in society. That's Mm -hmm. why we have such a high um, suicide rate within the veterans community, because once the veterans leave, their community, technically they're roosted from the nest and they don't know where to go. Right. Um, you know, and I can, I can honestly say I was there for years, mm-hmm. years. Um, and, and the one thing that is really interesting, and I, I know that I'm kind of going on a diatribe, but I want to share this is I think it's extremely important. Um, my twenties and thirties, I spent a lot of time studying martial arts mm-hmm. and Russian martial, martial arts in particular. Um, and I chased what the tale of what I call the paper dragon, where I always wanted to have somebody give me certifications and, you know, you know, give me the, the, the blessing to say that I was the man and within this field. Right. Uh, and I see a lot of that kind of going on within the cybersecurity realm where a lot of people are saying, you know, I need certifications. I got to a certain point where it's like, Now I'm looking for mentors Mm. more, more so than I am looking for people that can give me a certification. Certifications are great, you know, because they'll get your foot in the door for a job, but in reality, do you really know what that certification entails or do you, I I know that you understand where I'm going with this and that there's probably a lot of people within your um, audience that will also agree. But before I, um, decided to move on in life. I took everything, all of my martial arts certificates, everything except for meaningful doc documents from the military. And I put them in a smoker that I bought for myself on father's day. And I burnt all that stuff in my backyard. My neighbors are like, what are you cooking? I'm like 20 years of paperwork. (laughs) Um, but I, I did that because I didn't want to have that paperwork defined me as a human being. I didn't want that paperwork to define the parameters in which I could think about myself outside of the constraints that other people put upon me. And, you know, that was really a, a huge point for me psychologically, because I now don't have to focus on, you know, somebody saying, yeah, you got to have, you have to have this medal. You have to have this, you have to have, you know, right. this certification. You have to have gone through this school. Uh, the reality is, can you do it? Are you good at it? And how can we improve? Right. And those things, you know, it's like read a book, you know, um, take a look. It's in a book reading rainbow, um, you know, you, know, you got to read, you got to surround yourself with positive people. And you mm-hmm. constantly gotta um, strive to be a better you, and the only way that you can do that is by doing that exactly. Mm. Um, totally. So,
0: yeah, I, I think in our in our environment, um, especially you know the highly politicized environment and very politically correct environment, um, it's hard to find those people um, that have what you want. And what I did early on, uh, especially out of the military, was I latched on to the people that I knew were gonna make a difference if they hadn't already, uh, people like Chris Roberts. Um, you know, I learned so much more through basic osmosis from just being there when they're talking and, and just listening. You know, I always tell people if you want to learn how to do what we do, do less of this, moving the jaws and open up your ears and just listen. Um because there's so much that can be you know, discovered about the culture, um, the way that we learn uh, new things that we're looking at just by listening to people around you. Uh, you know, I, I really appreciate that about the cybersecurity industry. However, the, the things that I despise about the industry is just that, the, the certifications and the, uh, I guess, the profile that people put on you from the outside, uh, not knowing who you are not knowing anything about you, but reading a post and assuming that you're this type of person, you're that type of person. Um, and there's, there's so much, so everybody's trying to make this climb to the top, right? And everybody's doing it simultaneously. And there's a lot of people out there that would not hesitate to cut your throat to climb over the top of you to get to the next one. Um, and it's, I tell people, it's a great community to be in. Um, the, the friends I've made are, are phenomenal. And the quality people that I decide to surround myself with are great, but there are those other people out there and those other people are poisonous Um, and certifications. I mean, I I bitch about certifications all the time because it's a snapshot in time. The the test you take is over methods and techniques. Let's say it's hacking, right? Methods and techniques right now, Uh, but eventually, you know, and very quickly, those techniques and situations are going to change. So you learned this small window in time, what this meant. Now a year, maybe not even a year, maybe six months from now, it's going to change. And what we face is completely different. Um, I think the principles are all the same, but I think the content and the way we qualify people based on how they take a test is bullshit. Um, you know, I, for one, I, I test well, but there's a lot of people out there that don't test well, that freak out, um, get nervous, get nervous their mind gets clouded and now they're in proctored exams, right? So you, you're in this facility that they've got people watching you to make sure that you know, you're know you not cheating or whatever. And that puts an extra level of pressure on you. Um, and I, I don't think that that we should gauge people based on the score they make on a test. Um, that, like I said, that test is a very, very small sample of that person. Um, I've seen a lot of really qualified people uh, just You know, their background and and the way that they operate totally qualified for positions, but not get them because they didn't have that one cert. And like the DOD is infamous for this, right? So I was going to go over to Kabul and be part of a group that was doing cybersecurity and cyber intelligence. But you needed a CEH of all things and then an extra uh, certification on top of that. And I asked him, I said, why the CEH? And I realized why, because EC Council gave them a cut on that certification and, a, and, a, and a, I guess like a decrease of, of the amount of fee. Um, so they had a partnership with uh, the DOD and I thought it was really shitty. And when you look at EC Council now, I, I'm, I sure hope the Department of Defense abandoned that certification because that company is pretty corrupt. Um I invited the CEO of the, the company out to the podcast to discuss, you know, the the um, the way that they certify and and the content and what their certification means, but I got no response. So hopefully that that conversation will happen someday. Um, but as far as law enforcement goes, you know, I I too had that same thought of, well, I don't want to completely disconnect from the military. I even looked at Blackwater when Blackwater was still around. I looked at other paramilitary organizations to do. Intel and stuff like that. But it was like, you know, do I, do I want less protection than I had before and do the same job or do I want to find something else? So I decided to do something else. But I think as time goes by and we get these ransomware groups and the millions and millions of dollars that they're stealing, I see room for paramilitary type groups in cybersecurity. You know, if we can't shut you down and shut your network down remotely, let's drop a few people in. You know, Israel, I think, had the very first uh, situation of that where they got hacked and they just lit off a couple of missiles and destroyed the building that they traced the attack to. Right. Um, so I, I think when, when cybersecurity and cyber war goes kinetic and we start seeing infrastructure being attacked, I think we're going to see more room for those weaponized paramilitary groups uh, and also the intelligence, cyber intelligence that goes with it. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. Um, I actually agree with you on this in regards to um, going kinetic. And I think that there's certain things as far as, and I know that you've touched on this in some of the prior podcasts, like the last two weeks. Um, and this really got my brain flown in this direction. So I'm, I'm actually really glad that you asked the question. Uh we need to stop being so willy nilly with policy and look at exactly what that line is, you know, and stop mincing words and stop dancing around. Because when it comes to critical infrastructure systems, um, particularly with water, electrical supply, things like hospitals. this, where hospitals um, and, you know, dealing with, well, with hospitals and triage in general, if you look at most hospitals in the United States, most of them do not have open fields next to them. Mm. They are encased in some metropolitan area where they don't have an area to be able to triage people. If there are mass casualties due to uh, water poisoning through, you know, the attack of critical infrastructure systems. So, there needs to be a definitive line that is drawn that says, if you do this, then you get this, you know, there's no, there's no more beating around the bush. You know, we all know about Natan's, and we know about how things went down with Iran and, you know, there's a lot of speculation and a lot of books and things like this dealing with um the U.S. intelligence agencies and dealing with the Israeli intelligence agencies and how that played into the whole Natan situation Mm. with Iran. And, you know, that's kind of war by proxy. And, you know, there's certain things that if you're going to do it overtly, do it overtly and say, yes, this was done to you. And this is the reason why it was done to you. And don't play around. But the the age of being truthful and honest are gone. And and being straightforward with your action Mm. and trying to give a genuine experience, just as a person, you know, if you try to give somebody a genuine experience as a person, you know, just if you have try to have a a genuine interaction where you're having a conversation like we are right now, Mm. some people take some they take grave offense to it. Because yeah. if you don't completely agree with their mindset, then you're an enemy. Well, that's not the case, you know, and I'm not saying that we have to make everybody an enemy, but there are certain um, case players that we know are taking state information or they are taking information that is proprietary knowledge or intellectual um, oh, sure, property. Right. Intellectual property. And they're just abusing it, you know, and the whole state of China can be looked at as a threat actor in that sense. And you can also look at um, some of the privatized um, state funded organizations that are in Russia as well. You know, I mean, you don't, you no longer have the the Warriors of Colonial. You, you don't have that type of. Uh, gangster gangbanger type of mentality but those entities still still do exist
0: right and- i think it was i think it was after the fall of the ussr and all of the scientists and, and mathematician and computer scientists didn't have any jobs right the first thing that happened was criminal groups start forming and right. that's where we have a lot of those ransomware gangs a lot of those hackers now they're they're being funded and trained by old scientists that lost their jobs when russia fell i think we're going to see that a lot in other countries too
1: well there's a prior to me um leaving the army i was in jsoc and dealing with um N- nbc type of situations mm-hmm. and there was a lot of um a lot of different trainings they went to Aberdeen Proving Grounds and all this other stuff to learn about um, nuke, chemical mm. and biological agents and how they have effect on the body and dealing specifically with the way that the, the Russian state has developed their chemical warfare program and their biological program. And uh, there's a guy named Ken Alabek. Um, he actually lives in, I think, D.C. now. And he's a chemical engineer for a company in D.C. But when he originally came through the United States and they told him how much a scientist can make in the United States versus how much he was making in the USSR at that time, mm-hmm. he was like, well, how do I become a contractor <laughs> and work in the United States? So now that's exactly what he does. And it's good to see that he's able to make living here. But we also have to understand that there's a lot of people that are taking those skills and those traits and they are hired out by other nation states for deleterious action. And the more that we start to buckle down on the idea of how to kind of flesh out who's who within academia. And, you know, and this is my personal opinion. Um, if we were to use OSINT to its fullest skills or Mm. to, to the, to its fullest, what we would do is start decoding a lot of the Russian and Chinese materials and then find out who's who in the index and the bibliographies. And then we find out who influenced those people and then find out what their geographic locations are. And we will start to figure out who's who within this, um, infrastructure that's trying to undo because I guarantee you if we go back and we look at the underpinnings of who's who in the bibliographies of some of these books that have to do with computer science Mm -hmm. and you start dealing with you know some things aren't open source like a lot of the the court documents within Russia are not open source documents like they are in the United States Mm -hmm. um you know that you have to be part of the state to have access to those Whereas in the United States, it's not like that. You can get on Pacer, or you can get on one of these other websites and find out criminal activity. Um, but if we were to look at that and kind of flesh that out with both Chinese, Russian, Iranian, um, you know, you, you throw the threat actor in there. I mean, there's a lot of threat actors that are coming out of the Philippines right now, too, mm. um, you know, that have links to Abu Sayyaf. Yeah. Um, so... You know, it, you pick your flavor, you pick your day, and then you pick how you want um, to, what cone to put that flavor in, I guess.
0: Yeah, and, but you also run into the problem, too, uh, and we do it here in the U.S. as well. Um, you know, I just filed an FOIA on myself uh, sometime back to the FBI, and I literally got back uh, in less words, no comment, no comment. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> those types of, those types of, uh, requests for information, um, you know, they, they, tend to, to treat a little bit different, but like street crime, you know, you can definitely pull that stuff up pretty easily on some of the, uh, the county court, cl- county court clerks websites and do searches like, like that. Um, right. but when it comes to like the secret agencies, like the CIA and the FBI, it's almost impossible. Um, I have a, a good friend Robert Hansen that filed his FOIA and it came back. And you're supposed to get a, you're supposed to get some kind of return within a year, um, a result from your, your investigation uh, or your request. And he didn't get a full result. So he called and they said, Well, you know, let me do some looking and, and researching. And FBI came or CIA came back and FBI came back and said, Look, you know, there's three different categories, and let's just call them, you know, small medium and large, and they told Robert, yours is an extra large, so it's gonna take some time. And so he, my question to him was like, so while they're taking that time, do you need to continuously file FOIAs to see if anything else has been opened up? Like the whole system here is so convoluted and diluted and bullshit. Like there's no real way to find out information about yourself and, and what information they're, they're you know holding on to. Um, and with the KGB, I mean, you know, when you look at the way the, the USSR fell, and now it's being ran typically by the, by the KGB. I mean, Putin's, you know, a former, well, I say former, nothing's really former, but, he you know, he's part of the KGB. Um, you know, they, they do have a secret type of government. I got approached by a company out of Moscow not too long ago, about a year ago, almost a year to the day. Um, and they were a security company, cybersecurity, did pen tests. And they want to extend their market into the U.S. And I thought, mm, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know about this. You know, I rarely get approached by people from Moscow to do work. Uh, so I started doing some OSINT, found out the guy, you know, at one point the CEO had worked for um, the government um, in economy. So, I mean, th- there's a couple of things that, that raised red flags and there's a couple things that didn't. I talked to some of those guys that he worked, worked with uh, that were pen testers their knowledge was legit. Um, but it was still kind of like on the edge of being shady, you know? Uh, so I still entertained the conversation, went along with it and, and you know, I wouldn't mind doing the pen test for him. Although I think if I do, I'll probably up in prison. Um, but it was really, it was really interesting to see how they operate. Uh, and you know, when you talk about some of these people that, that, you know, have been in the bibliographies of these books, uh, computer science. We did the same thing. We did the same thing here in the U S when it comes to looking for the root of something, right. Um, unfortunately our government likes to do it to each other. And when we did that against the Clintons, we found out that they had Marxist, uh, I guess, ideals and influences from their college days. And that's what they truly believed in was Marxism. Um, And that didn't go over very well when it hit the public. But I mean, our country is such a mess right now, uh, politically, uh, organizationally, financially, health. I mean, it's just, it's a complete disaster. Uh, I remember when I left for Europe uh, before I got exiled for a couple of years, um, this country wasn't the same as it is now. And when I came back, I didn't even recognize this country. Uh, People were just acting just absurd and storming the Capitol on January 6th, like, I don't know what happened in the two years that I was gone, but all hell has broken loose. And so to be fair, you know, they're trying to do the right thing. Um, but I don't think the amount, you mentioned this, the, the amount of honesty and, and people being genuine from the government side to the people. I don't think that's there. And I don't think we're ever going to get that back. Um, I had a phone call today. We we're talking about this. Um, I had a client that the FBI contacted and said, Hey, look, uh, you're on a ransomware hit list. And that's all they would tell them. Wouldn't tell them who the threat actor was. Wouldn't tell them their method of operation or the vulnerabilities that they look for to, to get in. Um, wouldn't tell them anything. And I thought, you know, that's kind of bullshit because you know they know, and you know that they have, they obviously have the list. So they know which group it is. And they by that, if I just had a group name, I could tell you what vulnerabilities they they exploit and their method of operation and what servers are going to go after for first. So here we are trying to prepare this customer for potentially being compromised and losing a lot of money. And the FBI is sitting on information that they won't give people in the industry. And it kind of pisses me off because it goes back to, you know it's a one-way street and it shouldn't be that way. If, If I'm a CEO of a company and they have knowledge that I'm going to get compromised, I have a right to that i think as a, as a citizen as a business owner i should be able to get that information to protect myself um you know by showing up and saying hey you're going to get attacked good luck it's basically like Fuck you you know we're not helping you but by the way you're about to get your ass handed to you um and i think yeah, i talked about this on an interview in, in uh, Oklahoma city with textural is that we're not going to change the fbi's mentality we're not going to change the way the government works uh, they work in secrecy and they work behind curtains but we have to produce a framework so that by chance they decide to give us that kind of pertinent information. We have a way to filter it in, some kind of framework, um, some way to get it to where it needs to be within the industry. And I think as an industry, we need to quit being so quiet when it comes to being breached. Um, you know, I always tell people some of my best success is understanding some of my biggest failures. And by, pe- by companies exposing themselves, saying, hey, this is why we got breached. This is how we got breached and we fucked up. That makes the whole industry better because nobody's going to make that same mistake again. But again, if the FBI doesn't filter that information to the people who need it, we're all fucked. And I think we need that, that government level, that military level of intelligence and, you know, drive and full speed ahead to go after that type of shit. And I think it's going to get to a point in the industry where we do have groups like JSOC, uh, cyber, um, more like a cyber JSOC that goes after and and gets what we need and bypasses government bullshit.
1: Well, yes, I, I agree with you on a lot of that, you know, uh, on a lot of it, you know, a lot of Americans don't realize that there's a lot of nonprofits that are run in this country that operate very similar to, Intelligence agencies, you know, Southern Poverty Law Center is one of them, oh, and they, yeah. they they particularly deal with um, Extremist. hate, extremists and hate crime and things like this. But, you know, it and not to go on this whole Orwellian 1984 um, trip. Oh, we're,
0: we're past that. We're past that already. Right.
1: <laughs> but, you know, I think what is going on now mm-hmm. is groups of people are starting to get together that are like-minded. Mm-hmm. And you see this, you know, on Quora, you see this on Reddit, you see this on you know, even on Facebook, Wastebook. I mean, <laughs> um, you know, are and you'll probably end up seeing it in, you know, Meta or wherever else. But you know back in the day it was chat rooms and people that would get together that liked, you know, MMA or like computing, you get into a particular chat room and then you would talk on a thread about how to do X, Y, or Z. Right. But, you know, things have come full circle and, you know, with the advent of COVID going on, there's these small pockets of people and these, That's what they are. They're small pockets people. They're people that are like-minded that are continuously throwing ideas around in a way that is creative, incitive. And I think it can be very beneficial if these entities or these groups started working together in a way where if you are part of a hacking group, so to speak, Mm -hmm. You know, and you don't have to be a black hat hacker, but you can be somebody that has hacking skills. And if you see something and you say, hey, this is a trend that I've seen, they should be able to come to you and say, hey, Mike, this is something that I've seen. Have you seen this? Mm -hmm. And you'll be like, no, I haven't seen this. Or yeah, actually, I've seen this before. And, you know, sharing intel in a way between different citizens can mean a a huge difference Mm -hmm. you know i mean we've seen this with you know semantic and some of the ways that they were breaking down some malware a couple years ago and they had to bring in other folks to assist them Mm -hmm. to break down exactly what that malware looked like um so you know
0: I mean, in the underground, we have like hacking groups. They do share intel. Matter of fact, we share exploits and and, and we share you know targets. You know, in the in the underground, I mean, like, there's forums dedicated to selling these targets. Right? And people communicate and barter with each other. It's it's a whole it's a whole economy. It's a whole uh, civilization underground, right? And where I think the people on the other side of the fence fail <laughs> is they keep dividing people. They keep division going because they know that if they create division, then that's less power they have to deal with. Uh they're so worried about themselves that they fail to see that everybody else is
1: struggling. Right. Now it's really cool that you state this because there's some stuff that John McAfee said that's absolutely insane. Again, the guy was just off the chain most of the time. Yeah. Um, but he said a couple of things that really were was absolutely insightful. And a lot of it has to deal with culture, Mm -hmm. and how we deal with ourselves within a cultural context, and how we're going to apply ourselves inside and outside of our cultural contexts. And what you're talking about is a cultural context. So if you have these people that are on this side of the house, and they feel that they're in the intelligence community, and they're siloed, Mm And there's the FBI and they're siloed. And then you have the ATF and they're siloed. And here's the U.S. Marshals and they're siloed. Mm. Um, And you can't have that between inter-agencies. You know, I was just speaking to a firefighter, and this is just a firefighter. And I was asking him about joint exercises between him and the sheriffs and the police departments and everything else. And he said, you know, we were trying to do a... um, a vehicle rescue. And, you know, they were just retrieving dummies, but they were going to use the jaws of life and do everything else to get the, the person out of the vehicle. So that way they could get some of the newer firefighters trained on, on this. Right. And they said it was just terribly difficult because the sheriffs and the police department and the state troopers were all involved and they all were arguing on who was going to take the lead. Um, and I looked at them and I said, well, who was in charge of the FEMA and running the aspects of emergency management through FEMA. I go, each of you guys should have had that. He goes, we were, I go, then you should have taken the lead. He's like, that's what we said, but they didn't want a firefighter to be in lead. They wanted somebody that had a gun and a badge to be in lead. So it's a lot of this um, political red tape that you run into. And on the political side of the house, it's not even it. Like you had mentioned a couple of things earlier, and the only thing I wanted to do was like grab America by the ears and scream in its face uh, term limits on every senator and and congressman. You know, I, I, I personally don't feel, and this is, you know, this is my personal opinion, so take it for what it's worth. I don't think that a congressman and or senator should be in a position for more than that of a president. So yeah. no more than four years. And I don't think anybody that's a judge and this goes for any, any judge. Mm-hmm. Yes. I'm, I'm speaking to you, the ones that are of the bar. Mm-hmm. Um, you shouldn't be in there for more than a year.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I totally and, agree. You,
1: you and the have, reason why, the reason why I say that is because, you know, these, the, you get embedded in these positions and then there's no change because there's a specific mindset And then there's no way of getting away from it because now you're bedded with it.
0: Yeah. Then you have to you have to spend the next eight years changing the way things have been done. Um, You know, there's one particular leader that may be in the White House, no names mentioned, um, that's been in politics for over 40 years and has not done a fucking thing, absolutely nothing. Um, But yet we have to deal with that, you know. And and I guarantee you, most of the voting that goes on. The people's vote, yes, it, it carries weight, but we've gotten to a point in American history where the voting process, the election process, and what goes into it is bullshit. Um, we have electoral college, and, it, and no longer is it really the people's vote that matters. It's the government and the state. You know, it's it's looking at the electoral college, it's looking at constituents, it's looking about looking to who has the most money to influence the election, mm-hmm. and unfortunately, supposedly the the Russians influenced our, our election 2016, but I, I, I very seriously doubt that. Um, but anyways, I mean, politics in the U.S., I, I'm not a big fan of politics in the U.S. Um, I think it's very convoluted. I think that th- there's a huge veil over the front of it that people believe in something that really is not fucking there. Um, you know, I, I hear some older people talking about, you know, the government does great things for us you know, everything's on the up and up and and things will turn around, but I don't feel that way. Um, You know, knowing how the government works from the inside, looking at how uh, law enforcement works on a federal level um, is not, not what everybody thinks it is. And, you know, looking at that and how it affects everyday people, I think more and more people are starting to wake up to it. Um, But, you know, God save the queen when everybody gets on the same page and realizes that we've been screwed for the past 200 years. Um, but I, I, I don't think that it's going to last that long. So I had a conversation with a gentleman in Oklahoma, uh, really in-depth political conversation. And he had talked about a group of people um, way back when, like, archaeological archaeological times like way 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 back when um and they believed in a cycle they believed that the world functioned on a cycle and that Mm -hmm. cycle was roughly about 254 years and when you look at the major uh, empires babylon rome um places like that it's almost 254 years to the day uh, that the collapse happened and as a country we're not too far off of that 254 Um, we're, we're encroaching upon it pretty quick, but, you know, looking at the temperament of politics and looking at the influence that that temperament has with cybersecurity, it's almost scary because now Mm -hmm. the government's getting involved in ransomware. And now that the FBI has hooks into blockchain, that, that makes me nervous Um, because now we're, we're marrying two institutions together. We're marrying um, government, and people's finances, all in one. And when Biden said that he wanted to, the, you know, the IRS to do investigation on anybody who made uh, more than who had more than six hundred dollars in their account, I mean, that's some Gestapo shit right there. Uh, but that's what we're dealing with. And a lot of people want more government interaction in cybersecurity. And the only government interaction that I want in cybersecurity is more intel. Um, give us what we deserve, you know. And and that's going to be my push this next year. Is getting to talk to some of those people and getting them to see from our point of view, why we need that intelligence and, and why they shouldn't be the only ones privy to that Intel. It,
1: you know, it, with you saying that there's another veteran that I speak to, his name is Paul Cummings. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know if you know, Paul Cummings
0: sounds very familiar.
1: Um, he's a Navy guy. He's awesome. And he, he's doing a lot within, uh, the cybersecurity realm, you know, he's started a nonprofit organization called the whole cyber initiative. Mm -hmm. Oh, the whole human cyber initiative or something along those lines. He'll yell at me for not getting the name right. Um, uh, But he's stated quite a bit of the same stuff that you have as well. So there's a lot of like-minded individuals out there in regards to the way that Intel is being handled. So Mm -hmm. you're definitely not alone on that. And you know, with some of the corruption things and things that are going on within, um, in and or around the political structures that we have, uh, we still have peer to peer or peer to peer networks like um, Bitcoin Mm. and EOS and all these other things where um, different blockchain is being developed to get around. Um, certain things like Solana is another one that's starting to make a, a huge wave within the, the blockchain realm. And, you know, with the, the hyper ledger and smart contracts and all this other stuff. And a lot of people I think are starting to get really weary of what's going on with blockchain because they don't want to get put out of a job. You know, yeah. if you can have a computer engineer undo or usurp what a, a doctorate, a jurist doctorate has done and fancy language that's um, just legal ease. And you come up with a smart contract and you say, you know, if, or, or else, you know, mm-hmm. and you deal with this definitive language and, you know, it's Boolean in nature, you really can't get around it because now it forces a person's feet into the fire if they've done wrong. Mm-hmm. And, that's not what our system has been based upon. It's been based upon people being able to, um, um just skirt the system, right? You know? And it's um,
0: but has it really though? Has it been built that way? Because in my eyes, the the way that you know people learn to skirt the system is watching the people who built it skirt the system and those are the the government types and, and the, the political types you know so it, well, it seems like it was engineered it, to be skirted
1: it's a it's a double-edged sword because almost everybody that's within the government structure is a lawyer by their lawyer by trade right so right. they get in they get in there because they're barristers um you know and i'm using that term on a specific for a specific reason they're barristers mm. you know and that's when you're doing shady action at the bar mm. and, you know, this is and or around the bar because they all congregate around the Supreme's mm. and they try to get certain actions to happen at the, the largest level of our government, which is the Supreme court. And that goes and, with,
0: with money. A lot of that's money. and Correct. You know, being contributed.
1: Correct. correct. You know, so it's all lobbyists and all this other stuff that goes along with it. You know, but that, that's like what you discussed is if you're dealing with Intel and you're dealing with Intel on a big level, you have to have a good insight as to what politics are and how that falls into what the Intel structure is. Because essentially you have to know what snakes you're going to have to bed with to be able to get the right venom that you need to close the case. Oh, for sure. You know, you have to know your vipers, and you have to know who your cobras are, and you have to know, you know, you have to know who your snakes are. Um, and not all snakes act in the same fashion because they don't come from the same environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so now, now I'm talking like Abraham Lincoln. I'm using a lot of parables and things. <laughs> parables.
0: What's, things what's like. funny is it is is the way that the way that you put it. I mean, totally makes sense. And here's another thing to consider too is. So the FBI won't give us the, the intel that we need to protect companies. However, when they have a, an operation, if they need help from somebody that, that they may not have the the skills, which is most of the time, to do a certain portion of an operation, they'll go external and get someone like me or someone like Chris or whoever to fill in that function for them. But yeah, our industry is not... You know, we don't get that, that two way street. And I know that they had people are gonna say, what about the InfraGuard? What about the InfraGuard? Tell me once when InfraGuard was actually functional in stopping a breach. Uh, to my knowledge, zero. Um, and I've been part of the InfraGuard, and it was not something that, that was a two way street at all. Um, it was all about what business can give to the FBI, what they're seeing, you know, what they're communicating back and forth. They give to the FBI, and the FBI gives you absolute nothing in return. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, there, there's so many gaps in the way that, that we do business, not only as a government, but as an industry. And now that our industry is getting closer and closer to being part of, a functional part of that government, it's really terrifying for me because, you know, looking at the diversity that it takes to, to run an operation or to, to do cybersecurity effectively, um, a lot of that diversity is going to be taken away. Um, because the government is not known to be a very diverse place. Um, It's very, uh, you know, one-tracked. And, you know, if you don't fit a certain mold, then you're probably not going to be allowed in. I know for a fact that, you know, with my history, uh, the chances of me getting into the government and getting a clearance is probably nil. So, you know, you throw away that diversity and that knowledge right there. And I just, I hope that doesn't happen to our industry, Um, but I kind of see it going that way.
1: Well, yes, that may be true, but, you know, you could be a CEO and then you could be an oligarch and then (laughs) it doesn't, then it doesn't matter. I mean, you know, figure out something where you're the next Jeff Bezos. Let's get this, let's get this going because, you know, um, Amazon has a huge pie piece of what goes on you know, logistically within our country right now, you know, Google also logistically has a lot of information and Elon Musk is starting to climb that, um, that level of knowledge and understanding and just his, all of his ventures that he has out there. I mean, the guy's he's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, his, it doesn't he has like that Midas touch doesn't seem like you know the the guy comes up with a thing called the boring company and and it's literally boring things in the earth and it's just the double entendre Mm -hmm. is hilarious to me um and you know he talked about that with Joe Rogan on their on Joe Rogan's podcast you know the boring company yeah um but You know, he, he has this other thing where he just like creates like t-shirts or like flamethrowers or whatever, and sells like only a hundred of them and people, people buy the stuff like crazy. So, well, you got to figure something out where we, uh, I don't know, sell like eight balls that give you the proper cybersecurity answer you need while you're in a sock
0: roulette.
1: Yeah. There there, there you go.
0: (laughs) You know, I, I, I really, I really respect uh, Elon Musk. I, I think he's, he's phenomenal. Um, super bright and really, you know, he's got a creative mind. I just worry that government will get involved with him and ruin what he's done. Um, you know, now that he's working with NASA and, and got a contract with NASA, just that that makes me fearful.
1: I I think that where potentially things could go awry with that is Neuralink.
0: Yeah. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. That's so and
1: controversial. The well, and that's not new technology. It's not. That's been around. No. Uh, there's like a Rodrigo. I forgot the guy's name, but he implanted um, some l- electrodes within a bull's brain. I forgot the n- the name. Well, of
0: not only that, but you look at uh, the anti seizure uh, technology that they use, and they implant it into the base of the brain when the when that uh, electrode detects any kind of vibration or, or I call them vibrations, but any kind of,
1: uh, I Fibrillation. guess, of, yeah.
0: yeah, then it, it zaps you and it keeps you from having a seizure. So that type of technology has been around for a while. The only thing that that concerns me is taking those electrodes and this neural link and, and being able to link it from person to person. That's what, that's what I'm fearful of.
1: Right. Um, and this is all Ray Kurzweil stuff we're talking about right here. Yeah. Um, yeah. now if you've ever read singularity, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, Ray Kurzweil has got a brain from a different dimension. Um, the, the guy just, he's, he's crazy smart and I look at his information and I look at the way that things could be married up with people like Elon Musk or, um, others that just, they don't think in a conventional way, um, that definitely could be market changing. Yeah. And or it, it,
0: or it could be government destruction because so me and Max Hennemeyer from Dark Trace start talking about AI and the mm-hmm. risk of AI. And my my bold point was that if AI comes out and lands in the wrong hands, then we're all in trouble. Because well, but, no, no longer will it be for production or to further technology, it'll be to control to manipulate.
1: Yes, I can. I can totally see that. And, you know, I'm not going to go on in like a Terminator aspect with this, mm-hmm. but, you know, there's still a lot to be learned with AI, you know, oh, because, tons, tons. and the Chinese seem to be leagues ahead of us in the AI. You know, I forgot what the air force, um, commander's name was that, you know, put out information. He was part of the Air Force Cyber Command. He said that, you know, the Chinese are leagues ahead of us. Um, you, you probably read the article. It just came out a couple of weeks ago. Um, but with AI, machine learning, automation, you know, I, I'm glad that you actually brought this, show, brought this up because there's companies like UiPath mm-hmm. that are really starting to change the fabric of the way that like cybersecurity is being done because you can automate a lot of tasks. Um, or you can automate things in spreadsheets where you couldn't do that before. You know, mm-hmm. Splunk's a, a good system for querying information, but when you look at automating things like automation, that's life changing for a lot of folks. If you have that as a skill, then you can multitask without having to multitask. Yeah. You, under, you understand what it is to do a workflow, and then you put this within your workflow and. UI path knocking that out of the park, you yeah. know. But they, you're also dealing with that AI, because you essentially with UI path you're creating bots in the beginning, but then you start to learn how to uh, flesh out information with um, your machine learning, and then your deep neural nets and all that other stuff as you start to go deeper, and then you know, machine learning is one of those things. It's like, I am extremely interested in it. I just Mm -hmm. don't have enough time right now to
0: dive into
1: it, to to dig into it. I mean, like TensorFlow and all this other stuff is just, it's cool. And then IBM's dealing with Watson Mm -hmm. and, you know, there's, there's so many different branches that deal with machine learning and AI. It's like, where do you, first of all, where do you start? Um, You know,
0: and it's kind of like base algorithm. That's where I started. Bayes' algorithm, I mean, kind of lays out what AI is supposed to be based on predictions and behavioral analysis. But, um, really? Mean, the whole, yeah, the, the whole idea of AI, I think, is kind of like words lost in the wind until we finally realize what true consciousness really means. So I don't mm-hmm. think we'll, and we talked about this as well on earlier podcasts, I don't think we'll have true AI until we figure out what true consciousness is. You know, there's a lot of people with various different theories of what consciousness is, what does and doesn't have consciousness, and to what extreme or to, to what deficit. Um, but I think once we understand how the brain um, works 100% and the fact of, you know, what makes us a conscious being, um, I think then we'll have AI. And the podcast cat is just driving me nuts right now. Sorry.
1: <laughs> so. With that being stated, what do you think or what do you feel consciousness is? You
0: no, know, it's it's hard to tell. You know, there's sometimes when, when I see things in a different way that I think is now is that consciousness or is that imagination, is that creativity or is it coincidence, right? So there's a thing called remote viewing and uh, a lot of people saw the the movie men who Talk to goats and think that it was, you know, a bunch of BS, but it's actually, it was actually a government uh, operation. And there's a lot of people who have that inherent capability of remote viewing. Um, And there's been, I kind of toyed with that a little bit and, and dove off into it and it brings to question another part of consciousness. So is it just a conscious being here or is it kind of a universal consciousness? Right. So I'm I'm residing here, but if I focus and I think of another place, can I actually see something that's going on there or can I pick up something from there? So, you know, the idea of everything being connected some on some level of consciousness, I totally agree with. I think uh, it was right from 9-11 that um, the uh, sciences had put these nodes all over the world um, with in different regions and at universities And he said that taking a sample of the Internet and the tone and the temperament leading up to 9-11, you could tell it was more intense and and more um, polarizing up to the day of 9-11. And then it went kind of silent. Um, So he says he thinks that everybody is somehow interconnected, the way that they communicate in their consciousness. Right. And you can get an overall temperament based on Internet traffic which I thought was like phenomenal. I, I really wanted to learn more about it, but his study just kind of disappeared. Um, but I, I don't know. I don't know what true consciousness really means. Um, I wish his cat would get some consciousness because he's driving nuts. Um, <laughs> yeah, i he mean, literally clawing me and jumping on me. He doesn't do this until the podcast starts and he attacks me because um, he's not getting attention. Ow. Uh, so yeah, consciousness, I, I, I don't know. To be honest, I I don't know what that truly looks like. And I've heard theories about constructs that, you know, we live in a construct. Um, so many different theories. And to be honest, nobody really knows. I mean, we don't we only know a small percent about the brain and its overall function. Um, and I I don't know what it's gonna take to to get that other 90% and realize how everything works together. But I think it's gonna happen within our lifetime. I, I think that for sure.
1: There's a, there's a Christian pastor. His name was Chuck Messler. Messler. Chuck Mm -hmm. Messler. Mm -hmm. And Chuck Messler had, uh, he preached about the fourth dimension and how that would look to like two dimensional beings. So he goes, the easiest way to do this is to break it down. Like a kid would break it down. And if you'd have two stick figures, that are on a sheet of paper and you put your finger on the sheet of paper, it would look like a ring of human flesh had shown up on the paper. It wouldn't look like the tip of your finger or if you were to pass your finger through, it would just get bigger and bigger and bigger because you don't get to see everything that's around you. So with that being said, and you kind of look at mathematic models and things like this, I look at things as kind of being a transparency overlay, and I I view the world in a biblical aspect. So this is tenets of my faith. So you look at things in three tiers. So you have um, your soul, your spirit, and then your physical being, and the if you looked at the way that the dimensions go, you can also look that each of those entities, I'm going to say entities could be in different portions, you know, within the spiritual realm. And when you're dealing with remote viewing uh, in particular, and I also think that this, to some extent, plays within cyberspace as well, because you... If you look at certain threat actors and the way that they code information and you've dissected malware, then you'll know exactly who that person was that wrote that code. Right. Even though you might, know, might not know that person, you know that person because you know them intimately hmm. because you've touched something that they've been creative with in a way that no one else has interacted with that material before. So it's, it's kind of like when you go to an art gallery and you view uh, Salvador Dali and you see a Dali in a book and you're like, oh yeah, that's an amazing painting. But then when you get up real close Mm. and you see the finite detail that's put into that that painting, then you realize the mastery of that person that painted that, you know, and you don't realize that until you get up close and personal with the material. and you know, you have moments to look at it and digest it and take it in. Um, And I don't think that we give ourselves the chance to be able to digest information Mm. and take it in a way that's intimate to our knowledge, but also take it in a way that's um, intimate enough for us to be able to teach somebody else in a way that's going to be instrumental in the way that they learn, in a way that they are educated in a system. And, You know, to kind of bring this full circle, you know, when we were discussing, you know, what I do at intellectual point is I try to get veterans to look at what their um, true value is Mm -hmm. and not to undercut themselves in a way that is meaningful to their family. But in the long run, they'll just say, oh, my gosh, I didn't even realize that I had this as a trait. I didn't have this as this. I'm like, of course you did. You're resilient, but you didn't recognize it because you were up against the wall.
0: Yeah. And then, I mean, with saying that too, like I get so tired of of interviews, right? Interviewing people for, for jobs and being interviewed, right? Because they're so shallow. Interviews are so shallow. You ask them a technical question, you know, they can prepare for the interview by going to Google and looking up all the information pertinent to what that role contains, whatever. To me, that's not a skill. Um, I look, I look at those as, as a requirement, but not even a value add, right? Um, I want to know what type of person they are, how they think, um, you know, what what separates them from everybody else. I don't want to hear how many certifications you have. I want to give you a problem and see how you work it. Um, and it's funny, you were talking about different dimensions. So I went to the U.S. post office here in Tennessee, in town <laughs> I live in. Different um, dimensions. <laughs> oh, no. Let me tell you, it was definitely an experience. So I got a, a, a thing from Amazon saying that my mail could not be, the package could not be delivered. Uh, it was undeliverable. I thought, what the hell? So then I look a little bit further and says, being held at the post office. So I get up early this morning, walk over to the, to the post office. I'm already pissed because I'm like, this is the second time this has happened. And I get up to the window and I told the guy the address and he looked at me and he goes, well, The reason why it can't be delivered is because that apartment number doesn't exist in that building. And I said, wait a minute, if it doesn't exist, then maybe I don't exist because that's the apartment that I live in. And he's like, no, I'm telling you, it doesn't exist. And I just had to laugh because I started thinking, "Well, maybe I am in a different, different reality than these people, you know, because obviously I, I do live in that apartment and, you know, they don't see it that way. So their reality is completely different than mine. Right. Um, but that, I mean, just that brings up another point is the fact that the brain only sees what it's conditioned to see, right? So, mm-hmm. in that it's based on past experience mm-hmm. and what we think about as logical assumption. Um, so, let's say there are other things on this realm that, that, mm-hmm. that are new or, or something that we haven't experienced, our brains are going to matrix that and put it into a slot of something we have experienced or something that, that we are expecting or predicting. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of scientists that think that there's other things going on around us, but our mind can only conceive based on past experience or prediction or behavior what it's supposed to see. So what we see, the like, let's say the cell phone, right? Cell phone may be something completely different, but our minds are conditioned to see that as a cell phone. Um, so, I mean, when you talk about consciousness, like I could go on for hours. And not to mention, you know, drinking a little bit of wormwood right now is probably not a, a great thing for that consciousness. Um, <laughs> but it's completely legal uh, and it's a good drink. Um, but with that being said, we are over our hour. It has been an awesome conversation, John. I really appreciate it. And uh, I, I want to thank you for coming on and helping uh, the brother vets, you know, find that transition, that sweet spot in cybersecurity. Uh, Before we go, are there any questions you have for me about the group or
1: or the, you know, the Haunted Hacker podcast or anything? Um, Just those that are your listeners, um, you know, if you are a veteran and you want to get connected with me on LinkedIn, please get connected with me on LinkedIn. Um, If you are within the hacking community, I'm looking for mentors. I'm looking for people to kind of teach mentor and mold me along the way. Um, because you can't become better unless you have the right people around you and the skill set to be able to push you in that just right challenge. So um, that's pretty much my big ask. Um, You know, just get connected and connect with me and then build conversations and relationships that matter, you know, and and have a genuine experience. Um, You know, that's one of the things that Prem Jidwani, um, the CEO of the company, says all the time, "He goes, I just want these veterans to have a genuine experience." And I'm like, "They deserve that's that. Awesome. They that's deserve awesome. it. Yeah, yeah. They so, absolutely deserve that." Um, I guess that's just my big ask. Other than that, okay. I mean, you know, I just I find it to be a blessing that you had me on the show. Um, and you know, it was. Just, it was. This was a fun conversation. It was really fun. You know, I'm going to send you a whole bunch of questions and <laughs> messages and stuff in regards to some of the things that you stated because they took notes. Um, cool. I, but uh, I just want to say thank you, you know, yeah. and, you know, just it was it was nice to be here and just speak.
0: Cool. And, and I want to give you that platform and I want to give more bets that platform to, to get their voice out and, and get known. Um so yeah, let's, let's do this again sometime and, uh, let's have a podcast about Wi-Fi and war driving and, and some of the wireless technology, like, I don't know, GSM, we'll dive off into some cell phone hacking. Um, Absolutely. That would be it, fun. That that's my, that's my new venture. Uh, started that the other night with hack RF and a bottle of absinthe. And, um, yeah, <laughs> the, the two, the two combined really makes a clear picture and I was actually able to get what I needed. So with that being said, I'll go ahead and call it a night. And, uh, John, I really appreciate you being here and I can't wait for you to come back and, uh, for everybody else. Thanks for listening. And, uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Good night. You too.